Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 380. Everybody is killing everybody else, and no one's talking about it. Part 3. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Karen, David, and Nick for signing up already. Up in the hills of Snowdonia, pinned between the sea and the English Midlands, King Gruffith fought against the invading forces of the Godwinsons. And he was giving the English such a hard time that even the life of King Edward admits it in the record. Which, honestly, isn't that much of a surprise. Gruffith was a brilliant military commander. The trouble, though, was that Harold and Tostig were gifted generals as well. And while Harold's initial plan, based upon surprise and audacity, hadn't worked out he still had a few tricks up his sleeve. With Gruffith dug into the hills, the Saxon brothers deployed a pincer attack. Not on Gruffith, but on Wales itself. Harold would strike the coastal towns, while Tostig took the fight directly to Gruffith's homelands in the north. Making matters worse, Harold's hold on the coast was putting Wales in a blockade, making it impossible for Gruffith to gather Irish support. This put the king into an impossible decision, as no matter where he deployed his forces and no matter where he was operating, one part of Wales or another would be abandoned and left to the tender mercies of these Saxons. And for their part, Harold and Tostig were all too happy to play on that sense of abandonment. They began to use bribes and promises to sway the panicked and desperate Welsh nobles into switching sides and pledging themselves to the English. This strategy was so effective that over a century later, Gerald of Wales recommended the same land and sea tactic, complemented by bribery and undermining, as the ideal way to campaign against the Welsh. But victory is never guaranteed. And once the brothers joined up and took the fight to Snowdonia, once they were in Gruffith's heartland, things took a turn. The lightly armored Welsh were able to strike at them quickly, seemingly at will. And before the English could effectively respond, the Welshmen would escape into the hills, outpacing and eventually completely evading the pursuing Englishmen who were weighed down by their heavier armor and weapons. In the face of this, John of Salisbury tells us that Harold changed his tactics. The Welsh were highly mobile, and so his soldiers should be as well. The Earl ordered his company to fight in leather armor, which would be much lighter, and then focused their strategy on quick movement and lightning strikes. Harold ordered his troops to, quote, stick close to the enemy's fleeing footsteps in order that they might hold fast foot to foot and spear to spear and might repulse shield with shield, end quote. The English were adapting, and they were using Welsh ways of war against them. That would have been bad enough, but Harold and Tostig were putting their own English spin on it. The fact is that the English way of war in the Middle Ages was merciless, and it had been for centuries. You'll probably recall how, at Bangersi Coed, 
King Athelfrith had massacred over a thousand unarmed Welsh monks, whose only crime was that they were praying for a British victory. Or perhaps you remember more recently how the King of England ordered the massacre of at least two of his own towns, and as earls had actually carried out one of those massacres. The English of this period were ruthless, and Harold was an English earl. So he didn't just order his forces to doggedly pursue King Gruffith and his army. According to John of Salisbury, Harold also set about, quote, killing every male he could find, all the way to the pitiful little children, end quote. Gerald of Wales, writing in the late 12th century, reiterates that claim. Quote, he advanced into Wales on foot, and the head of his lightly clad infantry lived on the country and marched up and down and round and about the whole of Wales with such energy that he left not one that pisseth against a wall, end quote. It's a crude way of saying it, but what Gerald is saying is that Harold exterminated all the men and boys. In fact, this ethnic cleansing campaign was so extreme that Gerald of Wales claims that the first three Norman kings of England owed their future domination of the region not to their own military might, but to the catastrophic toll of Harold and Tostig's brutal campaign against Gruffith. Gerald says that were it not for the sheer level of bloodshed and loss suffered during this war, the Normans would not have been able to subjugate Wales in the way that they did. As for King Gruffith, he probably could have handled one or even two of these crises. But facing a combined land and sea invasion, an extermination campaign that was designed to terrorize, and a political campaign designed to turn his allies against him, well, that was too much for virtually any leader to cope with. And pretty soon, he began to lose allies. It likely started in the south, with the local dynasties down there that were already chafing at his rule. But when Gruffith's half-brothers, Blethyn and Rivwallen, who were likely governing the rugged and defensible territory of Powys, when they switched sides, Gruffith probably knew that his days were numbered. Those two men were probably some of Gruffith's most trusted and relied upon generals. And while it isn't known why they joined Harold and abandoned their half-brother, looking at what was happening, it's not hard to guess. If this went on any longer, there wouldn't be a Wales. It had to end. John of Worcester adds that the Welsh nobles all began to surrender and promised to pay Harold tribute and declare their king outlaw in order to bring an end to this war. The tide was turning. But consider what John isn't telling us in that entry. He isn't telling us that the Welsh handed over their king, or that their king surrendered. They just promised to outlaw him, which heavily implies that King Gruffith was still out there, likely still being supported by his household military and continuing the fight probably out in the woods and the wilds of his homeland of Gwyneth. But for Gruffith, the path to victory was slim. And this man, who the Welsh Chronicle describes as, quote, the head and shield and defender of the Britons, end quote, found himself living as a vagabond king. And after countless victories and achievements, he was now left with few options, 
and even fewer supporters. And then, on August 5th of 1063, a delivery was made to Earl Harold Godwinson. It was the head of King Gruffith. Harold repackaged it, and he sent it to King Edward, along with the prow of Gruffith's ship and all of his expensive rigging as a demonstration of his victory. Though it wasn't truly Harold's victory now, was it? The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle did try and give him credit, saying that Gruffith was killed, quote, because of the fight he fought against Earl Harold, end quote. But even the Chronicle had to admit that it wasn't the Earl who did it. It was King Gruffith's own men. This was an assassination, and a cowardly one at that. According to Orderic Vitalis, King Gruffith was soaking in the bath when he was taken by surprise and decapitated. But Orderic and the Welsh Chronicle don't mention the killer. Nor does the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. However, there are a few likely suspects. As we've discussed earlier in the series, the leaders of the southern dynasties had plenty of reasons to want Gruffith dead. Gruffith had been killing their kings, and on occasion nicking their wives, for decades. And that was bound to create a grudge or two. And Caradog, the son of the old king of Dehybarth, as well as Meredith Apawain, the head of the dynasty of King Huultha, and Cadwagan, another prominent scion of a southern dynasty, were all probably at the top of the heap of southern Welshmen who would be eager to see the downfall of King Gruffith, especially as they appear to have turned to Earl Harold Godwinson by this point and joined his side. Which means that they all stood to benefit quite a lot if this war would just hurry up and end. And it wasn't just these three men. Their extended family members were also in a similar situation. However, if the killer was from one of these southern dynasties, then how did they get close enough to do it? Surely by this point, Gruffith would have been aware that he had lost the South, given that he was already bleeding his closest supporters. I mean, if your own half-brothers have turned against you, are you really going to trust the people you conquered and who openly resent you? So, while I'm sure the Southerners had motive, I question whether they had opportunity. Conversely, the people who had the best opportunity would have been Gruffith's personal companions. That would be the group that could get close enough to him to kill him, and who could definitely move freely enough to get the job done. It's also the only group who absolutely knew where he was, since they were, you know, with him. However, Welsh poetry, literature, and laws all reflect a strong honor culture when it came to the household military of a king or a noble. Abandoning your lord in his time of need appears to have been pretty much the worst thing a person could do. Here's how intense the literature was when it came to this responsibility. Imagine that you're a household warrior for a lord. A really bad lord. A lord who sleeps with other men's wives and then plots their murder. And then this lord got caught. And everybody was like, oh my god, this guy is the f***ing worst. He needs to be put to death. In that situation, as part of the lord's tele, what do you think your responsibility is? Well, according to Welsh literature, the correct answer is you offer to die in place of your cuckolding, backstabbing, murderous lord. Obviously. I mean, he needs to live to cheat and murder another day. 
You're just some guy. And if you don't stand in his place, then Welsh writers will talk shit about you for generations to come. And they'll do it in verse. That's how strong this honor culture was. Deference to hierarchy was everything. So you can only imagine how bad regicide was in the Welsh imagination, especially if it came from the king's companions. As such, I find it highly unlikely that Gruffith's personal warband killed him. I mean, if they did, there should be entire ballads written about this band of shitasses who turned on their king. So then who did it? Well, the Southern Welsh weren't the only people with cause to hate King Gruffith. Don't forget that King Gruffith rose to power in Gwyneth first, and that only happened following the untimely death of King Iago, who, some sources claim, was killed by his own men. And Gruffith, as a local of Gwyneth, likely would have been counted as one of King Iago's own men. And shortly after King Iago was killed, Gruffith seized the throne, disinheriting Iago's son, Cunan, and forcing the young heir into exile. He fled to Dublin. Well, that was a little over two decades ago. And now, Cunan was a full-grown man who had become well acquainted with the way of the world. And he was well-positioned in the Hiberno-Scandinavian political world of Dublin. He had close political ties and influence in that wealthy slave-trading mercenary hub. And among those political ties was the King of Leinster. And he was an ally of Harold Godwinson. Furthermore, that king's son ruled over Dublin, which is where Cunan was now residing. Furthermore, the mutual support that was provided between the dynasty that ruled over Leinster and Dublin and the dynasty of Cunan would continue for many years to come. So Cunan didn't just have motive. He also had powerful friends who were willing to support him for decades. And those friends were also allies of Harold fucking Godwinson. But that being said, having some Irish mercs at your back and a desire to do a murder doesn't necessarily mean that you can do that murder. I mean, you've got to actually find King Gruffith, and then you need to get close enough to pull it off. And this is where King Gruffith's warband comes into it. Cunan came from a dynasty with a long and impressive history in Gwyneth. He could trace his lineage all the way back to Rodri Mauer. Gruffith, on the other hand, couldn't. Gruffith was, at best, a member of a cadet branch of the royal dynasty of Gwyneth, and that's really at best, whereas Cunan's lineage was the real deal, and that mattered in Gwyneth, and Gwyneth was the land where Gruffith was making his last stand. In fact, Gruffith's remaining household warriors were likely mostly from Gwyneth. Furthermore, Gruffith's most trusted treasurer and chamberlain was married to one of Cunan's relatives. And when Gruffith died, this same relative was close enough to Gruffith that she managed to get her hands on some of the king's fancy clothes. If Cunan wanted access to the king, or simply wanted to engineer his downfall, it seems quite likely that he would have had both the motivation and the opportunity to do so. And considering the method of the killing, a single well-placed killer was all that would be necessary. Now, to be fair to Kunin, there is a near-contemporary history of Kunin's son, 
And in that document, it doesn't say anything about Kunin being involved in the murder of King Gruffith. But then again, why would it? This particular son would end up quite powerful in Gwyneth, and ratting out his father wasn't exactly the kind of thing that would make the scribes writing that history all that popular. I mean, it's not exactly the kind of stuff that the people who were asking for that history to be written were seeking. And here's the trick with this. We actually do have one other record. The Annals of Ulster. And while the Annals of Ulster aren't infallible, especially when they're talking about things that are happening across the Irish Sea, they often do include details that local sources are more reluctant to include. And when their records include figures from Ireland and thus they have a bit more of an eyewitness account than you'd usually expect, I tend to pay attention to what they have to say. And here's what the Annals of Ulster says about Griffith ap Llewellyn and Cunan ap Iago. Quote, The son of Llewellyn, king of the Britons, was killed by the son of Iago. End quote. It's only one source, and it's a foreign source without any additional detail. But I don't know, guys. He had the motive, the opportunity, and his former neighbors in Ireland seem to have been pretty sure that he did it. Furthermore, after Griffith's death, it looks like Coonan may have been briefly installed as the King of Gwyneth, though that only lasted a few months. Coonan soon found himself dead from unknown causes, and his wife and young son, who was also named Griffith actually, reappear back in Ireland. Now remember that honor culture? Well, let's have a look and see what the Welsh thought about Coonan. Typically, when older Welsh sources talk about a man's lineage, or just talk about a figure in general, what they'll do is they'll say his name, then they'll say ap, which means son of, and then they'll say his father's name. But that's not what they do with Coonan's son, Gruffith. Gruffith is not remembered as the son of Coonan. No, he's remembered as the grandson of Iago, meaning Coonan was all but erased from the lineage. And there could be many reasons for this, but due to the strong cultural disdain for disloyalty and regicide, and considering that this wasn't just any regicide, the first king of all of Wales was assassinated and then his head was presented to an invading force. We can see why, if Coonan was involved, why Gruffith would be like, oh yeah, no, I'm the grandson of Iago and just completely erase his father. I mean, this was such a bad act that even modern Welsh histories speak about it as a shameful act. So you have to imagine that that sense would have been all the stronger back when Welsh honor culture was at its zenith. And it certainly could explain why Cunan was all but erased from the Aberthraw dynasty. So as a result, I suspect that it was Cunan who either did it or orchestrated it. Then, following the death of King Gruffith, Earl Harold moved quickly. He began preparations to marry Griffith's widow, Eldgith of Mercia. In doing so, he would have ensured that the Mercian dynasty, which had been a barrier to Godwin ambitions in the past, would now be brought in line with their family. The thinking appears to have been that if this new Earl Edwin was as obstinately opposed to the rise of the House of Godwin as his father Elfgar had been, well, maybe he'd change his tune if... At the end of it, it meant that his sister would sit on the throne. Furthermore, it would eliminate any chance that the Welsh might, once again, begin linking their dynasties with Mercia and start this whole problem over again. 
In Wales, Gruffydd's half-brothers, Blethyn and Rwallan, who had both turned against the king and joined Harold, swore oaths to King Edward of England and provided him hostages. In return, they were installed as the co-rulers of the kingdom of Gwyneth. And through their oaths, it was pretty clear that they were basically promising to act as client kings. They had to provide military support, payments, all that kind of stuff. Furthermore, by establishing them as co-rulers of Gwyneth, the English were making it very clear that England would not tolerate a united Wales. Not only would the smaller kingdoms be reinstated, but co-rule was being brought back. To the south, Caradog ap Gruffith, the man who Powell claims advised and invited Harold, well, he was soon recorded as ruling over a portion of southeastern Wales. Caradog's cousin, Ritherk, was installed as a local lord, and he took the position of King Gruffith's nephew, Ririd, who you'll remember as the man who was blamed for starting this war by daring to tell the English sailors to sod off. Cadwagan, another noble from another old southern dynasty, began ruling over Glamorgan. Meredith Apowain, along with his brothers, who were members of an old southern dynasty that stretched all the way back to King Huolthaw and who were key rivals of King Gruffith, soon took command of southwestern Wales. The Welsh political world was balkanized. And as for daily life, King Edward proclaimed that English men had permission to marry Welsh women. Now, the records characterize this as an act of mercy, saying that so many Welsh men were killed that the only kind thing to do was to offer those women English husbands. In reality, what this meant is that now that Harold and his army had killed large portions of Welsh men, it was crown policy for the conquering army to carry off Welsh women and take them back to England. Welsh women, who likely just had family members, including sons and husbands, killed by these Englishmen. Welsh women, who, due to this policy of extermination, were probably standing to inherit property. Unless they married, then their husbands would be due to inherit. Husbands, who were now likely to be English. This is a classic tactic of ethnic cleansing and colonization, and we'll see it again and again, on this island and far beyond. Wales was being conquered and portioned out, and it was either going to Englishmen or to those that the English felt would suit their interests. And it was done through the forceful co-optation of the Welsh people. There was no mercy here. And the English surely knew that, because they were terrified of a violent Welsh response. And we know that because Harold and his allies quickly passed harsh laws, stating that if a Welshman was found with a weapon anywhere east of Office Dyke, then his right hand was to be cut off. The colonization of Wales was now in full swing. And what of King Gruffydd ap Llywelyn? What of him? Well, like all the people we discuss... He was a complicated figure. There aren't heroes in history. Some of what he did was horrible, but he also accomplished something that no one had ever done before. And I don't think that we can deny that he was a formidable and effective king, until his downfall at least. So why don't we talk about him all that much? Why is this probably the first time that many of you have ever heard of the first king of all of Wales? Well, many historians will tell you 
that this is because he wasn't all that important. And to back up that argument, they'll point out that he didn't found a dynasty, as if that's ironclad proof. But as we've discussed, it's pretty clear that Griffith was actively trying to found a dynasty, and he did have plenty of kids, some of whom will go on to have a bunch of kids themselves. Furthermore, there are plenty of important figures throughout history that didn't found dynasties, and we still discuss them at length. And it's always strange to see a historian dismiss Gruffith, the first king of all of Wales, because he didn't found a dynasty, and then wax poetic about Athelstan, the first king of England, who never even had a single child. And to be honest, my suspicion here is that the reason that Gruffith isn't discussed all that much is because there's a long-standing institutional bias. History, as we know it, largely found its birthplace in the Victorian era, which was influenced by the Victorian culture that it grew under. And the Victorian imagination was blinded by Imperial England. And a powerful King of Wales, who pushed around Edward the Confessor, doesn't fit the theme of glorious empire. The Victorians wanted to hear about Rome, and of stories of mighty kings and conquests. And make sure that while you're at it, to include some stuff about Rome in there. Oh, and talk about conquest and colonization. Oh, and of course, do not forget Rome. That's what the Victorians wanted. So Griffith didn't fit. Now, obviously, the field of history, while not perfect, has at least improved from there. But do you know who trains historians? Other older historians. And so there remains a deep bias that will probably take time and generations for scholars to correct. And while many modern historians are doing a wonderful job at that, there's still plenty of work to be done, especially for the figures that hit the cutting room floor centuries ago. And so, in the end, I suspect that, much like the new laws, the newly installed kings, the extermination of every man and boy that the English could find, and the shady-as-hell marriage edict, the lack of attention paid to Gruffith is likely yet another example of a cultural project that has been in operation for centuries. It's a clear example of a theme that will be with us for the rest of our story. Colonization. But now, at least some of you know his name, and you know how close England came to being dominated by Wales, rather than the other way around. Thanks for listening.